0: The material that I presented at the last hour is a condensation of about six-hour six-hour seminar. All that material is available in uh, a book, a coffee table-style book, and the sequel to it. And then uh, both of these seminars have uh, $2 DVDs to make this material easily accessible where you can pass it out to other people. Apologetics Press, we're now in our 37th year nonprofit organization none of the monies that come from sales goes to pay for any of our guys it all goes back into producing more material to get it out to the brotherhood and beyond so all of that's back there in a the back room if you're interested and these are coffee table style books that at Barnes and Noble would cost you at least thirty dollars they're that nice with pictures all the images uh, but we sell them for half that and then if you buy two or mix or match you get another five dollars off we're just trying to get the material out there uh, for people The material that we're going to now cover uh, at this hour has to do with Islam, and I do a very lengthy seminar on that as well. There's a book back there and a $2 DVD if you're interested in that. We're going to have to squeeze this in very quickly, so listen fast. Can you do that? Listen fast. All right, what is this religion that is uh, in many ways so foreign to Americans? I mean, it's just so different from the American way of life, and I don't mean just our Culture. I mean, the Christian thinking, the consciousness of our nation that was shaped from the very beginning. But Islam is one of the fastest growing religions in the world. I mean, it, it was there for a while in its early centuries, and then it just kind of, you know, held its peace. And then suddenly, you and I are living at a time where there's an incredible resurgence. And it's in traditionally non-Islamic countries throughout Europe and now in our own country. And it is certainly making extensive encroachments. U.S. Post Office has dedicated a stamp that commemorates certain features of Islam. Well, Islam goes back to Muhammad, so you have to know a little bit about him. I don't have time to take you through his life, but um, there was a major event in his life where there, living in Mecca, he, he went out into the desert, kind of around the and went up on a mountain, Mount Hera. It was so hot, stifling heat, he went into a cave. He claims that he was visited by the angel Gabriel, who delivered to him a revelation from God. The first of 114 over the next 23 years. Those 114 were orally presented by him to his followers. After his death, they were assemb- uh, assembled and put into a volume, Al-Quran, which means the, that which is spoken oral, so the, the reading, the recitation. That's what the Quran is. So let me cut to the chase, because to determine whether or not any religion is true, any religion is authentic. Would you not have to go to its source um, that provides its authenticity and see whether that's true? You can't, you can't go to what people do. You would not want Christianity, the truthfulness and legitimacy of Christianity, judged by what people who have claimed to be Christians have done. They've done a lot of horrible things in the name of That's not what establishes whether Christianity is divinely authorized. You would have to go to the source that provides that authority. Well, that would be the Bible. If you could disprove the Bible and show that it's of human origin, then Christianity collapses. Well, that's certainly the case uh, with Islam. If Islam depends on the book that it claims came directly from God. We don't have time to examine it in great detail, but Let me uh, take you down one strand of thought. You and I are not very familiar with the Jewish Talmud. just not something we would ever look at or study. Nor would Muslims. The Talmud was written or put together by Jewish rabbis literally over the centuries, going back to before Christ. So it is a a multi-volume thing. A lot of it's been translated from the Hebrew into English. It's multi-volume. Uh, It is an authoritative record of rabbinic discussions, including ethics, customs, legends, case histories, stories, moral exhortations. Uh, Here is what uh, McClintock and Strong said in their theological uh, encyclopedia. Bounding, moreover, in fantastic trifles, rabbinical reveries, it must appear almost incredible that any sane man could exhibit such acumen and such ardor in the invention of those unintelligible comments, those nice scrupulosities, those ludicrous chimeras, which the rabbins have solemnly published to the world. They're not trying to be unkind. <laughs> They're just saying, you know, these are really crazy, crazy writings. And the Jewish rabbis would pretty much agree. Here's what Alfred Edersheim said in his monumental Life and Times of the Messiah. If we imagine something combining law reports or rabbinical hansard, notes of the theological debating club, all thoroughly oriental, full of digressions, anecdotes, quaint sayings, fancies, legends, and too often of what from its profanity, superstition, and even obscenity could scarcely be quoted, we may have some general idea of what the Talmud is. Okay, Uninspired, Jewish writings. Not really even to be compared to our commentaries, you know, the Gospel Advocate commentary series where the authors go verse by verse and explain the text. Now, there's some discussion of text in the Talmud, but that's not really what it's about. It's these rabbis through the centuries that make up these stories that they think have a nice point, and they put it in there. So there's this massive body of, of literature. It's really the kind of stuff Jesus criticized. You remember? When he said, by your traditions and all this other stuff, you're nullifying the Word of God. You're lifting this stuff and putting it higher than God's Word. He was talking about this kind of material. The Talmud has come down to us substantially in two forms, the Palestinian Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. This is the date, the termination date, of when they were substantially assembled and complete. Why am I telling you this? Because Muhammad was born in 570 A.D. So when he was born, there was this body of Jewish legend, fable, fairy tale that the Jews were very familiar with and they were very fond of and they liked to spread it around orally, especially in the Arabian Peninsula where Jews had uh, migrated as Acts 2 indicates very clearly and guess what if you go study this material and then go read the Quran you're like this is the same stuff So somebody copied from somebody. Which one copied? Well, it can be historically shown that the Talmud predated the birth of Muhammad. And when you examine carefully the details, it becomes apparent who's copied. Let me give you just a few examples. In fact, I'm not going to have time to give you but probably one. The burial of Abel. Does the Bible say anything about that? But here is what uh, the Quran says. In Surah, those 114 revelations, they're called surahs. In Surah 5, this is a, a celebrated translation of Muhammad Pikthal. I've only used Arabic translations, Muhammad, uh, Muslim translations, because I don't want to misrepresent them. This is their translations into English. Recite unto them. This is typical of the uh, Quran. It's Allah telling Muhammad to recite, that is to orally relate this information to his contemporaries. So God's telling Muhammad, Recite unto them with truth the tale of the two sons of Adam, how they each offered a sacrifice. It was accepted from the one of them, not accepted from the other. One said, I will surely kill thee. The other, by the way, notice no names here. The Quran lacks specificity in many places as if the author heard these stories sitting around a campfire with Bedouins and couldn't recall all the details. That's how it strikes you. So the one said to to him, I will kill thee. The other answered, Allah accepts only from those who ward off evil. These are parenthetical points is the translator adding words to try to help round out the meaning in English. Even if thou stretch out thine hand against me to kill me, I will not stretch out my hand against thee to kill thee. Lo, I fear Allah, the Lord of the world. Is this expression found anywhere in the Bible? The Lord of the worlds? No, but it's found in the Talmud. Lo, I would rather thou shouldst bear the punishment of the sin against me and thine own sin and become one of the owners of the fire. That is the reward of evildoers. So you got the picture here. Cain and Abel. Cain's threatening Abel. Abel says, hey, go ahead and kill me. I'm not going to kill you because I don't want to go to the fire. I don't want to go to hell. You kill me and that's where you're going. But the other's mind imposed on him the killing of his brother. So he slew him and became one of the losers. Then Allah sent a raven scratching up the ground to show him how to hide his brother's naked corpse. That's interesting, isn't it? That's Surah 5. Well, if you go open the Talmud and look at several passages... Nature was modified also by the burial of the corpse of Abel. For a long time, it lay there exposed above ground because Adam and Eve knew not not what to do with it. Yeah, first first death. No funeral homes. What do you do with the body? They sat beside it and wept while the faithful dog of Abel kept guard that birds and beasts did it no harm. Did you know Abel had a dog? You know, you go to Walmart and buy all these books and things for your kids and stuff. Throw all that stuff away and get the Talmud. This is interesting stuff. Just remember, the rabbis themselves will tell you. And I went to the synagogue in Montgomery. Spoke with the rabbi. He even took me over to the enclave where they opened it up and there's the Torah and scroll form and all that. And I asked him if he knew much about the Koran. He said, no. See, notice that. Jews don't read the New Testament. They don't read the, the Quran. Muslims don't read the Talmud. They don't read the New Testament. They don't read the Bible. Christians don't read the Talmud or the Quran. So I said, Well, you know, there's stories in the, in the Quran. And I mentioned some of these to him. And he went, Oh, yeah, the Talmud tells it. And he, he would relate the stories to me. I'm very familiar with the Talmud and what it said. So the, the Jewish rabbi said, all of a sudden, the morning parents observed how a raven scratched the earth away in one spot, then hid a dead bird of his own kind in the ground. Adam, following the example of the raven, buried the body of A. Raven. Notice more detail in the Jewish account, but obviously the same, even down to the specie of the bird. Is that a coincidence? You know, Muslims would say, well, the Jews copied us. They read the Quran." That's not what happened in history. Notice the Bible doesn't say anything about any of that. I don't have time to take you others, but the Quran has a lot of that kind of thing. I mean, very detailed, but less thorough than the Jewish accounts, which clearly provide the context and the background for making sense of the Quran. Because there's some things in the Quran that make no sense. And you can study from one end to the other and not make sense of it. But you go to the the Talmud, and it becomes clear what's going on. wish I had more time to take you through that, but again, material's out there. But now, if you just stand these two religions and these two books side by side and give them a fair analysis, I discovered that although there's a lot of details to compare, the number one recognition that we ought to have regarding Islam and Christianity, regarding the Quran, and the New Testament, the number one conflict between those, disagreement, is who Jesus is. You know, the word Christianity is not used in the New Testament, but Christian is three times in the original language. That's a God-endorsed term. Muslims believe that Christianity is essentially a false religion because it focuses, if somebody asks you, You know, i got five minutes. Tell me what Christianity is. Summarize it for me. You could do that. It's the religion of Christ. And and specifically the idea that humans have sinned, so God devised a plan in eternity by which he could forgive that sin and still maintain his godhood. And the only way for that to be done would be a suitable atonement. And there's no animals. Blood of bulls and goats won't do it. And there's no human that could die to atone for sin. So God's going to have to do it. So he assumed human form in the person of his son and died on the cross for the sins of all humanity. Wouldn't you say that's Christianity? That's it. That's the essence of it. Does this religion over here say don't lie and that religion over there says don't lie and Christianity says don't lie? Yeah. There's commonalities. But there's no other religion like Christianity. Because the heart, core, and soul of Christianity is who is Jesus and what has he done for us. And then, of course, Christendom from there scatters in in all kinds of crazy directions as to what God expects of you after that. But that's the essence of Christianity. And guess what? That's the number one conflict with the Quran. If you know any Muslims at work or anything, talk to them about that. And I can assure you what they're going to say. It's, oh, the Quran talks about Jesus. Yeah, we believe in Jesus. Oh, really? I mean, that's a true statement. But the Quran goes out of its way to say, Jesus is not the Son of God. He's not divine. That's a blasphemous concept. Let me prove it to you. Surah 3. Say, that is, Muhammad, recite or say to to your contemporaries, O people of the Scripture, people of the book, depending on your translation. That's the Christians or Jews. Come to an agreement between us and you, that we will worship none but Allah, there's the Arabic word for God, the God, and that we shall ascribe no partner unto him, that none of us shall take others for lords besides Allah. Do we see Jesus as Lord, separate and apart from God? Yes, but that's somewhat vague, admittedly. Let's go to uh, Surah 18. Praise be to Allah, who hath revealed the Scripture unto his slave, that is, unto Muhammad, to give warning of stern punishment from him and to warn those who say, Allah hath chosen a son, a thing whereof they have no knowledge, nor had their fathers. Dreadful is the word that comes out of their mouth. They speak nothing but a lie. If you say God has a son, that it, You don't have any knowledge. You're ignorant. That is dreadful. And you're a liar. You think this is a problem of translation? Maybe that's not exactly what the Quran means to convey. Well, I assure you it is. That's how Muslims feel. They may be very reticent to come out and say that to you because they're in America you're Christian-oriented. But this is clearly a strong fundamental doctrine. That's why they're beheading Christians right and left Uh, Isis is doing so. Why would they do that? Including children. Surah 9. The Jews say Ezra is the son of Allah. Christians say the Messiah. You know, that is an Aramaic word. They would pronounce it Mashiach. It's translated in the New Testament with Christos, Christ. Same word. The anointed one. Is the Quran accurate when it says Christians say that the Messiah, the Christ, is the Son of God? Yeah. The Quran is accurate. That's what we say. That is their saying with their mouths. They imitate the saying of those, here's the Arabic word for infidel, disbelievers. Allah himself fights against them. How perverse are they? They have taken as lords, besides Allah, their rabbis, there's the Jews, their monks. Notice that Catholicism was well underway by this point during the Byzantine Empire. And it's clear to me in reading the Quran that Muhammad's conceptualization of Christianity was Catholicism, which is further proof it's not inspired. Do you see that? because if God were offering it, he would not represent Catholicism as accurate in its handling of monks and all this other stuff. Not anything in the New Testament about that. And what else have they done? They've taken the Messiah, Son of Mary, when they were bidden to worship only one God. There is no God save him. The whole essence of this surah, these verses, is that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is not the Son of God, and he is not to be worshipped as God. Does the Bible tell us to worship Jesus? He certainly received worship on numerous occasions and never rebuked anybody. Because it was appropriate. He was deity. Look at Surah 19. Assuredly, they say, the beneficent, meaning Allah, hath taken unto himself a son. Assuredly, you utter a disastrous thing, whereby almost the heavens are torn, the earth is split asunder, the mountains fall in ruins. He's pretty upset about this, wasn't he? The whole universe is about to fly into cataclysmic destruction for you to say that God has a son. That you ascribe unto the beneficent a son when it's not meet for the majesty of the beneficent that he should choose a son. There's none in the heavens and the earth except those who come to God as a slave. Jesus comes to God as a slave like the rest of us. He's not God. That was Surah 19. Look how much there is in the Quran Bible. Surah 25, he unto whom belongs the sovereignty of the heavens and the earth. He hath chosen no son, nor hath he any partner in the sovereignty. He hath created everything and hath meted it out for measure. This is the same position, and uh, no unkindness intended, that the Jehovah's Witnesses take. Jesus is a created being, like the rest of us. Well, that's what the Quran teaches. Surah 6, the originator of the heavens and the earth. How can he have a child when there is for him no consort? You know, God would have to have a wife in order for him to have a son. Well, see, there is a very primitive, confused understanding of the biblical doctrine of the sonship of Christ and the fatherhood of God. There is no God save him. Notice again an affirmation that God created all things, the implication being that includes Jesus. Now, you, having studied your Bible, your life, know that the concept of the divinity of Christ is so thoroughly embedded throughout Old and New Testament that for somebody to say, in fact, they will tell you, when the Bible says Jesus is God, that shows that the Bible has been corrupted over time. What they don't seem to understand is it so thoroughly permeates the Bible, that's proof that it it wasn't simply added later. It was there from the beginning because it's thoroughgoing throughout both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, Notice, for example, um, Colossians, where he is said to be the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By him all things were created. Do you think of Jesus that way? When you read Genesis 1, the six days of creation, do you think of Jesus being there creating? The New Testament affirms it repeatedly. All things were created through him and for him. And look at this he's before all things. There's the eternality of Christ. Can that be said about any of us? We all had a beginning, not Jesus. He's before all things. That proves he's not a created thing. And look at chapter 2, verse 9 of Colossians. In him dwells, this term is used three times in the New Testament, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Deity indwelt in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 4, Jesus, who is the subject matter of the gospel, the good news, is the image of of God. These are blasphemous statements to a Muslim. Hebrews 1, God in these last days has spoken to us by His Son, through whom He made the worlds. He's the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. You know what else Jesus is doing? He's keeping this universe from flying apart, literally. He's upholding everything by the word of His power. That's stated two or three times in the New Testament. Remember on that occasion where the disciples... Uh, we're in the uh, district of Caesarea Philippi and you said, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, you know, some say you're this prophet, that prophet. Who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up with a definitive answer. You are the, and he used that term, Mashiach, Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto you, you are Peter, you know, you're a Pebble, but upon this ledge rock truth that you have just articulated, I'm going to build my church in the gates of Hades, Hades, not hell, Hades, will not prevail against it. That is, it will not prevent me from coming out of the Hadian realm and establishing my church. Notice the terminology, my Father, and the identity of Jesus. And what about Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost? You know. Peter and the other apostles, Peter's sermons recorded, lays out four lines of evidence, draws the logical conclusion like a good logician, therefore, that God hath made the same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christos, Christ. That's an affirmation of the deity of Christ. The great treatise on justification, Romans. The the gospel concerns his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, declared to be son of God. Notice in Jesus' fleshly body, did not exist in eternity. It came genetically through David down to his mother Mary. But Jesus didn't begin at that point. He's existed throughout all eternity. In John chapter 10, on one occasion, the Jews uh, uh, were ready to stone Jesus. And he said, why are you doing that? For what, notice this term, uh, work. It's a parallel term to a key stylistic term in the book, um, sign. Use some 16, 17 times. And that means a miraculous action that serves as a sign. It's proof that the guy that performed it is a bona fide representative of God in this case, that he is God. That's the point of John. And so Jesus says to them, you know, for which of these proofs that demonstrate who I am, are you wanting to put me to death? He's gigging them with that because they should have seen the sign and said, wow, you are God and I'm bowing down before you. They said they want to kill him. And so they said, well, it's not for one of these things that you've done that we're wanting to kill you, but because you being a man, make yourself God. Now there was the perfect time for Jesus to say, whoa, time out. You have misunderstood. I'm not saying I'm God. I've never said that. I didn't mean to leave that impression. Is that how he reacted? They were right on the money. He acknowledged it before Pilate. What you have said is absolutely the case. That's what he said to Pilate. Not only does the Quran forcefully deny the deed of Christ, though it's all over the place in the Bible, did you know the Quran says that Jesus was never crucified? How about that? That's cataclysm. Here's the definitive passage, Surah 4. Because of their saying... We slew the Messiah. They slew him not, nor crucified, but it appeared so unto them. It seemed like they did. I spoke with a, sitting in an airport, I think it was in Salt Lake City, and a Muslim was there and wanted to plug in his thing to power his uh, phone or whatever it was. And So I just asked him, what what do you believe about the crucifixion? He said, well, uh, they started to put Jesus up on the cross, but God intervened, took him away, and inserted in his place somebody else. That's who was executed, not Jesus. Where did he get that idea? It appeared so unto them, those who disagree concerning it or in doubt thereof. They have no knowledge thereof, save pursuit of a conjecture. They slew him not for certain, but Allah took him up unto himself. That harmonizes with what he told me on that occasion. Well, you know, to a Muslim, what does it matter? That's no big deal. But if you understand the biblical doctrine of atonement, that God cannot forgive you of your sins and therefore you're going to hell unless he steps in and offers himself as the sacrifice. There's not one iota about that in the Quran. And the notion of blood atonement, even through sacrifice, is completely absent from the Quran. Muslims will sacrifice a camel to give food, meat to the poor. But if you suggested to them, is this like a religious sacrifice for having something to do with sin? They would reject that vociferously and tell you absolutely not. The uh, plan of atonement, the plan of forgiveness in the Quran is to stack up enough good deeds that God will overlook the Quran. Says. That's its word. Your bad deeds. So stack up good deeds. To over- and if you die defending Allah, then that will do it for you. Uh, The Quran forthrightly denies that there's such thing as Trinity, a triune God, Uh, those who believe in God and His messengers say not three. Cease. It is better for you. Allah is one God. Far is it removed from His transcendent majesty that He should have a son. That's Surah 4. Here's Surah 5. Whoever ascribes partners unto Allah For him, Allah hath forbidden paradise. You cannot go to heaven if you believe God has partners. Well, what do you mean? Well, keep reading. They surely disbelieve, there's your word for infidel again, who say, lo, Allah is the third of three. Now, you you believe that? You're headed for painful doom. Could the Quran be any clearer? That's its teaching. Very quickly, let me show you a couple of shocking things. You know, that's enough for Christian people to understand the deep contrast between Islam, Christianity, the Quran, and the New Testament. And this is less shocking to Americans than it once was because we've been so hyper-sexualized in our society. Have we not? Just unbelievably so. Two men, two women, all that. Well, polygamy, right there on the radar. There have been no fewer than two television shows on mainstream uh, media glorifying, promoting, and saying, hey, you know what's wrong with this? And uh, we just continue to decline. But you see, that's ensconced in Islam. I believe the Old Testament teaches that God tolerated it and allowed it, but it was not His will. Because when Jesus in Matthew 19 was answering the question about divorce, he said, you've got to go back to the beginning to see God's ideal will. Well, you go back and He created Adam and Eve. He didn't create Adam and Steve. He didn't create Adam, Eve, Treva, and Susie. He didn't create multiple wives for Adam, nor did he create multiple husbands for Eve. See, the prototype for God's will regarding human interaction sexually and so forth is one man, one woman. That's very clear from beginning to end of the Bible. But the Quran openly declares that polygamy is is acceptable, it's, co- it's in fact commanded by God. And notice even to the point of stating how many. You can have up to four. If you fear you cannot do justice to so many, which certainly would be the attitude of any sane man, you may have that many, up to four. Now Muhammad, of course, was allowed much more than that. And Muslims justify that by saying, well, you know, he's the prophet. Look at Surah 4. Men are in charge of women. By the way, with all this political correctness that has blanketed our civilization, they blast Christianity, they hate Christianity. Hollywood pretty much hates Christianity. But then when the Muslims come along, that whole political regime, that liberal regime, they're very accepting of Islam, are they not? You're you're seeing this in our country? Well, the way they treat women, the whole feminist movement from the 60s forward ought to be up in arms. Here's an example. Men are in charge of women because Allah oh, made the one of them to excel the other. You hear that, lady? They spend of their property for the support of women. So good women are the obedient, guarding in, that is obedient to their husbands. Guarding in secret that which Allah all has guarded. As for those from whom you fear rebellion, admonish them, banish them to beds apart. That's proof that this was written by a man, not a woman. Then if you obey, if they obey, you seek not. This is Muhammad Pickthall's translation. Take a look at Abdullah Yusuf Ali. This is another very celebrated Muslim translation. He says, if you fear disloyalty and ill conduct from your wives, admonish them, he inserts first and next. Refuse to share their beds. Well, by the way, uh, notice Pickfall uses the term scourge them. Ali says, beat them, and then inserts lightly, which is not in the Arabic text. I asked my wife, she's here, if I could frame this, you know how you frame scriptures and put on your in your room in your house? If I could you know frame this and put it on. It didn't go over very well. <clears throat> but uh, the Quran teaches a man may beat his wife. You got it? Yeah, there's proof it's not from God. That one passage proves that's not from God. You can read about womanhood from Old Testament to New Testament. That's not the teaching of God. But what about violence? Was 911 a fluke? Is ISIS a radical offshoot that doesn't represent mainstream Islam? Well, again, we can't really count noses. We can just go to the Quran. You know how ISIS is recruiting young people now, even from this nation? They're quoting the Quran today. Read it for yourself. How about um, Surah 47? When you meet in battle, those who disbelieve... um, Stop right there. Does the Quran teach warfare and fighting? We don't have to go any further. Okay, but what about this beheading stuff? Where'd that come from? Some radical faction? It is smiting of the necks. Until when you have routed them, then making fast of bonds, and afterward either grace or ransom till the war laid down its burdens. And if you are slain, he renders not your actions in vain. That's Surah 47. Surah 2, a lengthy surah. Fight in the way of Allah against those who fight against you. Begin not hostilities. This was an early surah when Muhammad was in more of a defensive posture, when he became offensive and aggressive, that it wasn't, you know, don't fight unless they come after you. Allah loves not aggra- aggressive. Slay them wherever you find them. Drive them out of the places whence they drove you out. For persecution, look at that, is worse than slaughter. It would be better for you to slaughter your persecutor than to endure his persecution. Isn't that the exact opposite of what Jesus said? Fight not with them at the unviable place of worship. That's the Kaaba in Mecca, where they until they first attack you. If they attack you, kill them. Fight them until persecution is no more and religion is for Allah. You know what most uh, commentators say about that one phrase? That means you are to continue to wage aggressive warfare against non-Muslims until you take the whole world for Islam. Read the passage again. Fight them until persecution is no more And religion is for Allah. The world's religion is all Islam. All right. There's a lot more there. Attack, attack, attack. Look, this is later in the same surah. Warfare is ordained for you. He's talking to Muhammad. Um, Persecution is worse than killing. Here is Surah 22. Sanction is given unto those who fight because they've been wronged. Allah is able to give them victory. Surah 61, Allah loves those who battle for his cause in ranks as if they were a solid structure. Notice none of this is uh, figurative. It's literal. Surah 47, when you meet in battle those who disbelieve, smite at their necks, um, he will guide them, improve their state, bring them unto the garden. This is the Arabic word for paradise, which is actually a Persian word, which is modern-day Iran. Here is uh, Surah 5, which says that thieves are to have their hands severed. The only way for you to know what is appropriate ethical reaction to human behavior is to go to God and let him explain it. And the ethics of the Bible compared to the Quran are unbelievably in contrast with each other. We are we, these two religions are in irreparable conflict. The Quran and the Bible contradict each other. The Quran teaches that there's no such thing as the Son of God. There's no Trinity. There's no crucifixion, and obviously, then, no need for blood atonement. And it advocates and promotes polygamy and violence. And there are other ethical issues, but these ought to be enough in order to uh, get this across. Now, let me bring this to a close by. Uh, let me just give you. Uh, let me pick one one of the founding fathers, and there are several of these, and all of this information is available to you. This was a court case uh, that went to the highest court in the state of New York in the early 1800s. James Kent has gone down in history as one of the fathers of American jurisprudence. So we're talking, you know, one of the founders of the legal system of our nation, probably hardly ever referred to in law schools today, sadly. Because he wrote a monumental commentary on American law and in a case uh, where he was giving the uh, majority opinion, look what he said. That this was a case where there was a fellow out in public that was cussing and, and bad-mouthing Christ. And he was arrested and fined and uh, put in jail and and, uh, and so it, he appealed the case and they tried to, the lawyer tried to say, oh, you know, religion, there's freedom of religion in this country. Here's what James Kent said. The free, equal, and undisturbed enjoyment of religious opinion, whatever it may be, free and decent discussions on any religious subject granted and secure. But to revile with malicious and blasphemous contempt the religion professed by almost the whole community? That's an abuse of that right. You don't have that right. Constitution doesn't give you that right. Our judges need to hear this. And who are you going to believe, by the way? Judges today or the guys that wrote the Constitution. Nor are we bound by any expressions in the Constitution, as some have strangely supposed, either not to punish at all or to punish indiscriminately, like attacks upon the religion of Muhammad or the Grand Lama. Follow his thinking here. Could you go out here in public and undermine Christianity? No. You're undermining the foundations of our civilization. Can you go out here and badmouth Islam? Or Buddhism, the Dalai Lama? Yes, you can do that. Why? For this plain reason. The case assumes we are a Christian people. The morality of the country is deeply engrafted on Christianity, not on the doctrines or worship of those. Do you know any judge or any politician in the country today that would use that term to refer to Islam or to Muhammad? Well, tell me this. If you believe the Bible is the word of God, was Muhammad a false prophet? Don't, don't have any ill will in my heart about that. It's just an observation. Even as there have been many people who have come and established religions that are not endorsed by God. Have we gotten to the point where we will not acknowledge that forthrightly? Look at all the prophets of God and how they conducted themselves. Look at 1 Samuel or 1 Kings 18 where Elijah was on Mount Carmel and hundreds of these prophets of Baal came. He said, okay, you call on your God and see what happens, and then I'll call on mine. And they tried for hours. Even jumping around and cutting themselves and doing all kinds of things, that's false religion. See, Working themselves up emotionally. There's a lot of Christendom that does that. And then Elijah stepped forward. And remember he, was, he mocked them said, you know, maybe you need to cry, call louder. Maybe he's gone on a trip or something. See, we would say, oh, that, that's not Christian. We don't want to offend anybody. Well, obviously it's not in our heart to harm or offend anybody. But do you know who's harmed, who is who has offended and insulted more people by the billions and trillions? God Himself. Because He doesn't see false religions so softly as you and I do. He sees it as a direct challenge to his will and reality. And it's causing trillions of people to be lost in eternity. You ought to be upset about that. And I'm telling you, most Americans, for most of American history, were straightforward enough to state, here's the facts of the matter. This is spiritual reality. All right, I'm going to ha- uh, have to hurry through this. Our time is up. Let me come down here to the end. All of this material is available in book form and on a DVD where the founder spoke. I showed you this uh, earlier. What can we do? Very quickly, we ought to love people, shouldn't we? I mean, even people that are trying to destroy our country, take us down, harm us personally, individually. Christians still love those people. Why? Well, we want them to be saved, we want them to go to heaven. Remember how uh, Peter put it about God? God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2 4, God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That ought to be our attitude, too. We ought to love people, show them respect, be kind. But I tell you, we ought to tell them the truth. Because what you and I are unable to do in convincing people, the content of the gospel, wields its own power that you and I do not have. If anything can turn people's thinking around, it's God's thinking. Now, sadly, history shows the vast majority of people won't even accept that. But it's our job to give it to them. The most powerful force for changing people's lives. All right, go to our website to get a lot of this material free, by the way, in article form. Uh, all of that being generated and put there just to help all of us to insulate our souls and prepare for eternity. All right, the elders have asked me to extend the invitation. I don't know about you, but when, you know, you can spend your whole life and study just the Bible, just Christianity, and that is absolutely sufficient to convince you of the truth. But every time I've stepped out of that and studied another religion or other doctrines, you know, like, like baptism. You know, do you have to be immersed in water before the blood of Christ can cleanse you? The vast majority of Christendom says no. Well, I, I just love going to see what they say about that. Why do you say that? Now, what do you do about this passage and this passage and this passage? I was on a radio program not too long ago where a denominational preacher, I simply asked a very simple question, a, a uh, grammar question about Mark 16.16 16, and rather than answer it he said for every passage you quote on baptism I'll quote 20 on faith so okay but what about these errors participles in Mark 16 see when you listen to the defense given for why people believe what they believe and you study it you'll see that's not true So that only, you can just study the truth, that's sufficient, but you can study error, and it only makes you more convinced that the truth is the truth. And that's the case with Islam. There are 1.3 billion people on the planet that profess Islam. Now that would cause some people to say, man, there must be something to that. No, there are a billion atheists, skeptics, agnostics. There are a billion Hindus. There's no way for Hinduism and Islam to agree or harmonize. Those are diametrically opposed it. Hinduism believes in thousands of gods, like little Ganesha that's a little pudgy boy with the head of an elephant. You know, even if evolution were true. So going and looking at all of these, well, what are the other options? Atheism? Is that an option? Go, go study it. Look at the fruits of atheism. Look what it's done for mankind. And look at how illogical it is. Our website's loaded with this, just loaded with it. How illogical it is. You have to deny plain, bald-faced evidence in your face. You just have to brush it aside and dismiss it to conclude there is no God. So the truth defends itself if people care to study and look at it. And it would cause a person to fall before the God of the universe and and realize that God has done for us what we could not do ourselves. He sent his son who died for us. We've got to believe that. We've got to believe in Christ. We've got to change our thinking. That's repentance about our sin and our behavior. We've got to confess Christ with our mouth. Isn't that interesting? Muslim says you have to say, La ilaha illallah Muhammadun Rasulallah. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. You've got to say that to become a Muslim. But do you know what the New Testament teaches? You have to say, look at Romans 10, 9, and 10, with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You cannot be a Christian if you don't do that. And that same book, back in chapter 6, says you've got to be immersed in water in order to be baptized into Christ's death. Why would you say that you have to confess Christ with your mouth Accept Him as your Savior. But you don't have to be immersed until after the fact, if and when. Why would you say that? The same book in the Bible, let alone the rest of the New Testament, teaches baptism is the culminating act where God is able to apply the blood of His Son to our sin-stained spirits. And notice, that occurs in the mind of God. There's not anything in our bodies that's going to happen in that water. Forgiveness occurs in the mind of God. But when does He forgive you? When you obey his gospel. What a majestic, simple, but profound truth that Satan has managed to convince a large number of Christian people to reject. What a tragedy. May God strengthen us as Christians to be faithful in these trying times. Our nation is under attack, and, and by the way, Christianity is. It's always been. But I believe that we're seeing a time. In the most Christian country the world's ever known. Where Christianity is under heavier attack than ever before. I mean, it's serious. And if we're just going to go merrily on our way and act like nothing's going on. And not realize, for example, that we've got to prepare our children for what's coming. What are your little girls going to do when boys walk into the restaurant? Have Have you prepared them for that? What to do? What steps to take? That's just one aggressive assault upon us. There are many others across the slate, and more coming down the pipe. And We ought to bolster our courage and be happy. We know God will be with us through this, but let's not be naive. And that, Let's not you know, stick our head in the sand and say, well, I'll just wait and see what happens. No, let's think through this and prepare ourselves for what's coming, what's already upon us. And that means we're going to have to be spiritually alert, vigilant, 1 Peter 5.8, because Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's devouring a lot of people in our country right now. Are we ready? Are we ready to be faithful and dedicated and courageous and determined, men and women, and help our young people to do the same? Maybe you need to come forward and make changes in your spiritual life. Thank you for your kind attention today. We need to respond to the invitation of Christ. Will you come as we stand and sing?